As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Welcome to another episode of Toby Talks 2 with me, Toby Moody. Over the next hour, I'm catching up with a stalwart of the paddock, who as a manager has done many a deal to get riders in the best seats over the past 20 years with his smooth, clever and calm way. Simone Battistella has worked in motorsport all his life and in the world of athlete management for over 30 years, so there isn't much he doesn't know about getting a deal agreed and for both sides to be happy signing on the dotted line. Simone, uh, thank you for joining us. Where in the world are you at the moment? Hi, good morning. I'm in London, where I live since uh, 20 years. Oh, okay. So you've, uh, are you into cups of tea rather than coffee, or is still coffee a favourite? I'm still an espresso. <laughs> you never change. <laughs> no, I don't. You never change. Now, um, obviously, this is going to be a podcast focusing on rider management, driver management, sports person management. Just bring us up to speed to 2023. Who are you? Who are you managing at the moment? At the moment, I'm working with Alvaro Bautista in World Superbike and uh, Yari Montella, who is in World Super Sport. Okay. Um, I'm also working with the young Italian in the CIV Championship, which is a sort of superbike for the Italian Championship called uh, Samuele Cavalieri. Um, I'm sharing my time, uh, splitting my time between the management and another couple of activities that uh, I started to, to do in the last uh, couple of years which are, you know, connected in terms of content creation to motorsport and, uh, and, uh, and also to catering, which is nothing to do with motorsport. Okay, okay, okay. And, and, and who, have you, who have you looked after over the past, how long have you been in the business? 20 years, 25 years, longer? How long have you been involved? So I've been in motorsport since 1991. Now you make the calculation. I don't... I can't count so far. But, but in terms of management, I started in 2002 um, uh, when I joined CSS Stellar Management, which was a company owned by Julian Jacobi, uh, a, a great, great manager in terms of uh, Formula One drivers. He was the manager of Senna and Prost to begin with, and then he went through top drivers uh, in Formula One for many years, including Montoya, Jacques Villeneuve, uh, and then Franchitti, Dario Franchitti, and uh, and uh, many other, Richard Burns uh, in rally, etc. So uh, Julian and uh, his colleague Team Size asked me to join the company to to help uh, in the management of young drivers at the time. Because my background was, uh, you know, I was a sporting director at the time of Formula 3 and Formula 2 teams. So because of that background, they were trying to get young drivers to join the company in terms of management. And I, I knew a little bit that kind of business. So I moved to London, joined the company. And then uh, after a couple of years, I started, you know, to focus more in motorbikes. 
And in 2000 and end of 2003, I signed my first client in motorbikes, which was a very young Andrea Dovizioso. He was 17 at the time. And uh, little by little, my, my focus shifted towards two, you know, two wheels more and more. Uh, also, thanks to the result and the development of the career of Dovi. A world champion. Uh, was, uh, we'll uh, well, that, and a legend and a legend and a MotoGP legend as of uh, <laughs> a few weeks ago exactly um, what um, what what is what is involved what are the basics of contract negotiation is it literally arguing over a table because that's how a lot of people maybe imagine what it's like between a rider management manager and, and the manufacturer or is it sometimes really easy and really simple well it can be incredibly easy and simple you know if uh, if the expectation of both parties are similar okay um, it can be complicated especially you know when uh, when there is a lot of money involved you know, and, uh, and but it really, it's, it, negotiation can vary so much as a contract can vary a lot. You know, if you talk about a formula, sorry, a motor free contract, of course, it's, it's, it must be simple in terms of what you write because the interests are small, you know, and uh, the, 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 the idea is that uh, the teams want that rider, that rider accept the team or wants that team. And you find a deal with the money very quickly. You know, when you start talking about a multi-million, multi-year contract with uh, a MotoGP manufacturer, um, things might become complicated. Uh, normally, though, the once you sorted out the economical side, um, then the rest can be long simply because you have to put together many elements of a contract, you know, the image rights, uh, all the obligations from uh, that are upon the rider and all the obligations that are upon the team. Um, so it can be compli complex, but not complicated. In the meaning that complex means there is a lot of elements to put together um, legally, but uh, not so complicated in terms of negotiation. You find the deal very quickly. You know, if you want to have it, you will close it. There was somebody at uh, HRC and he told me 20 years ago uh, because I asked him, I said, you know, what, what is it like to, to negotiate with Valentina Rossi and do a deal? And he kind of said, you know, they come in at 20, we say 10, they say 15, we say 12 and a half, 13, 750, done. He said, honestly, sometimes the money is the is the shortest part of the conversation. It's then the PR days, it's the promotional activities. Is that something that's mm, true with what the HRC guy told me? Well, it, it is it, it's very different actually to negotiate with the European team or, or with the Japanese team. The, culturally, the approach is, very, is quite different. You know, often you find uh, easier to negotiate with the Japanese because at one point you can see that there is no more room for negotiation, and you see it clearly, and you know that that is it. You know, you either accept it. Or you don't, but you can't force it anymore. If you're talking about money, for instance, you know, uh, with Europeans, it's a little bit more complicated because it seems that there is always a little bit of room, you know. There's always, you know. <laughs> but I, I assume that this is also because of the size of the companies, you know. Uh, the, the, the Japanese companies are huge, you know, so they have a budget. Once the budget is settled, you know. The guy who is in front of you negotiating the deal, he has that number. He cannot simply decide to go over it. He is trying to spend less, maybe, but then the, 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 once you reach the limit, it's, that's it. He cannot move anymore, you know? So you have to find other solution in this case if you want to, to achieve more financially, you know? Or you have to give out of the financial point and then uh, try to obtain more in another session of the contract. You know? For instance, the availability in terms of days and uh, spaces that you might obtain to, to sell your own, to get your own sponsor on the, on the leather, on the, 
on the helmet, stuff like that, you know. So, but with Europeans, the feeling you have is that there is always room for negotiation. So, you <laughs> never know, you know, the, the, the line. And you must have a line on a hard stop as well for your client. And then, yeah, you have, you're also you're from the other side. You have the client's expectation, which in my case are the riders. Um, and that is more a, a matter of the, uh, managing the expectation of the ride. You know, sometimes uh, the, the job on my side is to explain that, you know, it will be realistic to obtain the number that he has in mind simply because maybe the numbers is not there and not just in the case of that single team. Or, you know, when, when you negotiate a contract for a rider, you need to understand and know what are the numbers around, you know, what are the other deals, what, are, what, are, what is the average around and how strong you are in, in your position to ask for that kind of money. So if you, if you feel you are very strong and you can push, you know, uh, if there are other alternatives for the team, then you're not very strong. Yeah, yeah. Is it sometimes frustrating that a rider is, okay, well, I want 10, but you've only got me eight. And you say, yeah, but you've got to trust me in this. That's all that they've got. Do you sometimes have a rider that's well I want more you know that element of trust has got to be more than 100% in you yeah I never had this problem though because it is a process where the exchange of information from the beginning is very tight you know I speak a lot with the riders constantly during the negotiation um, maybe I don't speak on the, during the race weekend I wait the evening or even the end of the race, you know, to give a resume of the chat and negotiation that went through during the weekend. But uh, uh, this constant reciprocal uh, exchange of information with the riders, let's say that open up the, the path to the, to the right expectations, you know. And, and it's never just about the money. You know, the money is, is important, of course, but then there is the technical side, there is the, 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 the image side, there is, uh, you know... So what, um, what's the technical side, if I can jump in there? Well, the technical side, you know, if, if the rider really wants that bike, the bike is a winning bike, the rider is much more flexible. And from my side, it's, it's the perfect scenario because even for, for me, the most important thing is to get the rider in the best possible team with the best possible bike. Money will come, you know. Um, so the result, or putting together the right elements to obtain the result of winning races and fighting for championship, ultimately, is the goal. Because that, that will generate the money. When you started 30 two years ago with with CSS and you saw the first contracts that were going out with clients with drivers with riders and such like uh, were the was it just a hard number this is what we're going to pay you or was the bonus scheme very much part of contracts 30 years ago as I sense they are nowadays um, contracts in, in, in motorsport are very open you know it's not like standard standard deals as you have in football, for instance, or in many American sports, where they say that the performance side is very simple to negotiate, you know. Then you might have complex image side with the big stars in football or in other sports. In motorsport, it's a, it's a very, very open. It's a, uh, it's a blank page where you have to write the deal. So the elements to find the deal are many. So you have the basic number, the salary, but then this can vary so much with the bonuses. And bonuses is not just first, second, and third. Bonuses can be on points, can be on up to the you know, 10th place. And sometimes every single point scored by a rider is a bonus. You know, you can have position 
in the championship. You can have, uh, you can even put, you know, a bonus on the performance of the company itself on the on the how many bikes they can sell at the back you know, end. Wow! You can you can be so creative in this sense that you can get so many things into it to find, uh, you know, something that is good for, for both parties, acceptable for both parties. Everybody's got to win. Yeah, yeah. And there is also another element that you have to keep in mind that in this negotiation, you want to make sure that none of the, none of the parties feels as if, if it is a loser, you know? Because then the relationship is not starting the right way. You know, you want to make sure that we, both parties are, okay, we're happy. Okay. It has been a struggle, but then we can shake hands and start working together because this is the real point, you know. Um, so you don't want to, to get to the point where you have a very upset team manager or a very upset rider. And have you had that? Yes. <laughs> yes, it does happen, you know, because sometimes you find yourself with the, with the, you know, the back against the wall. And you have to, 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 to understand what are your priorities. Mm. If the priority is to ride with that bike, because now this is what you have to do, then you have to accept whatever is on the table. So you negotiate as much as you can, but at one point, you have to take it. You know, and then, uh, and then maybe the rider is not happy. And then you start another phase, which is the one that you have to help the rider to reset from that and just work with the team on the technical side to win races, you know. Mm-hmm. Have you had to use a get-out clause at all? Get-out clause are important, but both parties are aware of those clauses. So you need to be careful how you put them into the contract or how you accept them, because you know that if they are there, there is a reason, you know. Um, and, 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 and in the back of your mind, there is always the knowledge that the get-out clause is there. So they might get rid of the rider, or the team knows that the rider might walk away. You think about the four-year contract that Marcus signed with Honda. If there was a, back, a walkout clause, I, you know, that it would be an issue at the moment. Although Honda has always been pretty open, saying that they will never hold a rider if he doesn't want to stay. And they did release Olga Lorenzo a few years ago, uh, although he still had a one-year contract with them. They did release him, you know. Uh, but yeah, if there was that clause in that contract, that would be very tricky to manage now. Surely that has been brought up and discussed over the last month or so between Marquez and HRC. It has to have been discussed or thought of. What do you think? Well, I assume they have, uh, in this case, you know, I think the complexity of the situation uh, it's very difficult to judge it from the outside. For sure, um, the only way to convince a rider like Marker to stay with Honda is to show him that there is a project that is very serious, there is a very detailed plan, and convince him that this is the plan to go back and win championship. You know? All the rest counts for nothing. You know... To the point that Mark might even stay home for one year. I was going to ask you that. I was going to, you've you beaten you, me to I mean, it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Mark, Mark is, uh, is, is, is an incredible rider. I mean, you know, I went to put him out for the first race and I love to go on, you know, the service road to watch them. And uh, although I'm not technicians or, or, or I haven't been a rider myself, so I clearly miss a lot of what's happening. But when you see Mark riding, it's simply another thing. He's it, a, a rocket it's another, ship, isn't it? It's he? something else. Yeah. It's another. <laughs> so he had this incredible journey through the injuries and operations, and you know, and the guy is just coming back and is as good as he was. 
So nothing, I think, will prevent him to say, yeah, I'm taking a sabbatical now. Mm -hmm. Healing perfectly, and because the injuries are accumulating every time you step on that pipe. And then uh, come back, you know, as a free man with, you know, see my option through the season next year, avoid further injuries. And uh, if he's healthy, Mark is just a winner. Mm -hmm. yeah. When he crashed in Hareth in the July 2020 during the COVID, mm. that very hot race yeah. in July, would yeah. you have let him race the, the weekend after or at least try to ride a bike? Absolutely not. Mm. If I invest, uh, you know, in my career I've been a sporting director in teams, although it was Formula 3 and Formula 2, and uh, the dangers, they are not connected to it. But you still have to manage things, you know. And uh, so you have the most valuable part of your team is Mark Marquez. That's it, you know. And uh, you have this guy who only has one limit. He is himself, when he doesn't control his, say, incredible will, will to dominate the others, he generates damages, you know. He does crash, he does hit people, he, he did lose a championship in 2015. He lost it and he admitted it. He lost it because he didn't want to win, he wanted to dominate. So as soon as you have these kind of characters, you need just to do one thing, manage the guy, you know. Manage this incredible energy because if you don't control it, it will implode. Mm. And this is what happened. The guy made a mistake at the beginning of the race, came back luckily last or whatever, and then was lapping one second faster per lap than the leader of the race, not even the other guys, you know. So he was passing. And the only things you have to do at that moment is give him a message to control. To control it, you know. Finish because the race. You have Take already seen that yeah. he is the fastest of the pack. So, is this the first race of the season? You have the fastest of the pack by far. Bring it home. Second, third, doesn't matter. Bring it home. You don't push him. I know. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. And I said the same at the time. I said, you know, you, you just somehow, sometimes you've got to finish second and take 20 points, not 25, because when he wins a championship, he wins them by tens of points, 50 points, or even 100 points. You know, he's got a huge advantage. He could miss four races and still have won the championship. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Uh, I mean, do, but, you remember yeah. 2019, Mark average point were 22 points per race. Oh, he won that championship, 22 points per race. We have, like, you know, it's over an average of second place per race. So you don't have a problem to win races with Mark. The only problem you have is to control him. Mm, couldn't agree more. Because he cannot. Sometimes he simply cannot control himself, mm. you know. Uh, I understand. I mean, if it was market, that would be even worse, probably. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. But he is, he is the most valuable asset of the team, you know. And uh, now I would keep him home yeah. to heal, yeah. to check, to make sure that, the, you know, that part of the, of the structure is sound when it comes back. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. 
Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Talking about emotion in a garage and emotion particularly outside the garage, behind the truck, between the trucks, the fathers of some riders, how frustrating have some of those fathers been to your rider that you are looking after at the racetrack? Well, I have been incredibly lucky, especially with Dovi and with, uh, with uh, Alvaro, that they had understood very quickly, very soon, that they needed to put everybody in his place. So they never cut the family out, but they made sure that the role of the family was set, you know. The presence has never been forbidden, but with limitations, okay? And uh, and that was, for me, incredibly lucky because then I saw the other side, you know, when the family has no boundaries and uh, the intrusion is, is, I mean, it is difficult to manage for me, for the manager, but this is not the most important thing because I can manage family, you know. The problem is that I haven't seen a single rider where the family is involved in the management succeeding. That says a lot. That says a lot. Yeah. That's it. There is something there. And, you know, I'm a father myself. And I always wonder when my son, who plays American football, asks me questions, you know, uh, and I always ask myself, do I have to give a suggestion? Is my suggestion, <laughs> uh, you know, not the right one simply because I'm too emotionally involved? I, I don't know the answer. I don't have the answer. And I, I'm not sure what kind of father I would be if my son was a rider. But one thing is sure, statistically, there is no winner who has a father or the family involved in the management, getting to the garage, talking to people, asking questions about the bike, you know, that stuff, you know. I haven't seen one. Mm. They must be, in a way, they must feel released from this to become in charge of themselves for their career, you know. <clears throat> Marco Melandri said something to me once uh when he was sort of standing on his own two feet. Marco started very young, as you may remember, in the late 90s, the Benetton Playlife bike. He was just 17 or even 16. And and his father, Dino, drove him around Europe in a little motorhome because Marco couldn't drive. He was not able to, to navigate the world at that age. But you know, Dino was quite a character. I kind of got to know him, what little Italian I could speak. I spoke with him. He was a bit of a flamboyant guy. Anyway, I said to Marco Melandri one Mugello when he was something like Grassini days. So 2006 with the Fortuna bike or was it before? I can't remember. Anyway, I said, uh, I said, uh, is your dad coming? Because I haven't seen him for some time. He said, nope. My, well, yes, my father comes on Saturday and then he goes home. If I was working in the biscuit factory, nobody would want to come and see me work. I'm at work here, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I've got to do my job. And I just thought, hallelujah, a rider can see the reality of what this thing is because it's a multi-million euro project for everybody involved. And you can't be running to the gate with passes and seeing your auntie Mavis because she can't get in at the... Ah, oh, you know? That was a great line, I thought, from Marco. No, yeah, absolutely. I agree with him. You know, they, they, they are working and they are surrounded by professionals who are working. So any interference to that is, you know, is uh, detrimental. Mm. And uh, is, um, it's something, you know, unfortunate, you know, I have myself had this negative experience with young riders sometimes where he was simply at one point 
impossible to to manage. And nobody was happy. Nobody was happy. So, yeah, that's it. What do you do during a race? Do you stay out the garage? Do you go out onto the service road? Do you go into the public area? What do you do? I, I wander around. I, I, I like to go in the service area, uh, but I'm not spending all the time there in terms of practice stuff because I like to stay in the garage I was lucky enough to start my career in motorsport as a helper of the mechanics in Formula 3. And I have to say that, uh, you know, fuel tires, stickers and cleaning was the best school I could have in terms of understanding what's happening inside the garage. So you see so much stuff that, you know, gives you a clear idea of the level of the team, the problems they might have, the strength, you know, um, how balanced is everybody in terms of reactions, mistakes, uh, all this stuff. Um, so I like to stay in the garage when I can. Uh, I like to go to the service road to watch because uh, it's incredibly funny. I have to say, you know, any motorsport was so close, life is fantastic. Um, I like to spend time in the media center, talking to journalists, uh, hearing the comments, uh, or sometimes being there to explain what's happening, you know, to, uh, to give a more understanding of what is the situation, especially when the riders are struggling. We want to make sure that the journalists, the media, understand uh, that uh, um, the, the reasons, the backgrounds, you know, and uh, um, you don't need to... I'm not one of those rider managers that try to justify the, the rider blaming the teams, you know. But simply, you need to make sure that they understand, they follow the story when the rider is not up there. Because then, if the rider goes to the top, they have a background. They appreciate more, you know, what is happening. Yeah. Um, I like to talk a lot with the teams, with the team managers, with the team members, with the mechanics. Uh, the, um, I have my meetings with, with Dorna, you know, on the commercial side, uh, also sometimes with other departments. Um, I meet the sponsors. I talk to them. And then at what point I, you know, I have a beer and I go for dinner. <laughs> 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 it's... It, it is a very important part of the weekend, I would say, because, you know, this, this thing in, Moto, in MotoGP is, is fantastic, you know. The fact that you can spend time with the same people that you work in a friendly manner and uh, enhance, the, enhance the level of relationship. So when you want to understand something that is, you know, they wouldn't tell you, if you have a good relationship, you can ask. They can trust that you're gonna give it. You're not gonna give it away, you know. It's just so. Even the, the beer, you know, before dinner, the aperitivo, is something that uh, is is not only great fun among friends, but also very useful. Oh, I could not agree more. I could not agree more. There's sometimes there's some races where we all have to run off on a Sunday evening, and you miss out on a dinner or a party not a huge party not a championship winning party but sometimes after three or four races you you just want to have a social catch-up with all these friends in the paddock that you don't have a social catch-up with because it's all so busy they're bit they're, they're putting the tires on the rack they're pulling the fuel in the bike they the team manager has got to go to the televisione he's got to it's sometimes nice to just relax and and have that reset socially and as you say you can maybe uh, get get extra knowledge and extra stuff out of them that way have you ever had to have clandestine meetings with team managers so that the press don't see have you had to go to hotel rooms outside the circuit have you had to smuggle yourself into a motorhome at, at night so that <laughs> nobody sees you is it is it been that kind yeah. of level of james bond yeah yeah sometimes it happens you know sometimes yeah i do but i'm lucky because in my position I'm quite neutral i have you know different riders so i might get into a, an office 
team manager's office, you know. Uh, but you don't know what I'm going to talk about. I might talk about the commercial side connected to the team sponsors or regarding the riders. Um, I remember once that, uh, you know, uh, I think Dovi was, uh, I think he was in Honda. Well, actually, he was in 250. And uh, Livio Supo was at Ducati. He asked uh, if Dovi would consider joining the MotoGP Ducati team, you know. Wow, and that was, you know, um, I say, yeah, well, it's going to be, I don't think Andrea is aiming for that, you know, it was a bit too early, it was very early. And then, uh, and Livio said, which was clever from Livio's side, because, you know, it was a way to convince the rider, come to the garage, sit him on the bike, you know? Oh, that's half so, the trick, isn't it? Yeah. So that was, in the middle of the night, we have to go through, the, you know, everybody's, already sleeping, left the hospitalities, so Dovi comes off his motorhome, we walk through the through the tracks, get into the box, a bunch of guys in red waiting for Dovi, and so we say hi, I talk a little bit about the bike, etc. Then they have come on, sit on the bike. And Dovi sit on the bike and, <laughs> and, and leave you and leave you, you know, uh, the heat uh, tell one of the, the the mechanics to turn on the bike. Switch on the engine, you're the beast, you know. And, <laughs> and then in the middle of the night, there is the cutting engine roaring, you know, in the garage. And uh, yeah, you have to do this kind of stuff sometimes, you know. And uh, and it's quite fun actually. It's quite fun. Well, it eventually came full circle, didn't it? <laughs> yes. It eventually. Did. Eventually. Eventually. Um, how easy was it working with Andrea? He seems pretty easy from the outside. Was it that way from the inside? Uh, no, I don't know. It was not easy. It is not easy. Really? It is not easy. Really? But uh, I'm not saying this in a negative way. Because, you know, it is not easy because Andrea likes to think and understand the details. In a way, Andrea is very demanding. And that is... That helped me a lot to understand, to learn, you know. I've been schooled by working with Andrea. So if in my journey as a manager, I started, you know, working beside a couple of great managers, you know, like Julian Jacobi and Tim Size, um, then the rest was, I worked for a period of time with Alan McNeish, you know. He was a client of Cesar Stella, and uh, you know I was uh, in a way um, help, I was helping him. And Alan was um, yeah, he was in control. He was uh, you know he was already a winner of Le Mans. He did Formula One. He was back to Audi in the Le Mans um, project. And uh, I mean I was incredible. I learned so much from Alan. And then with Dovi the same, you know, because. Even when you explain something you think you're teaching a rider, you are learning. You're learning how to approach it. You're learning how to um, modulate your wording to pass the message. When there is a message which is not positive, you know, and you want to get it through, how do you do it? Mm. So you learn. And then you learn a lot because, you know, these guys, particularly Dovi and, and Bautista, they're very good. They understand things. They want to understand. So when you sit down with them and they, you go through things, they make questions. You need to be prepared to have the answers. And you need, to, you know, so they, they push you to be better. And Dolby, in this sense, having had this incredibly long and uh, successful career, having worked with uh, Honda, Yamaha, Ducati, you know, he, you know, I had to go through negotiation with Japanese, with Europeans, with uh, Italians. So all this, the French, you know, uh, so all this is, has been an incredible experience. And uh, I am very grateful that, of what I've learned, you know. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Was it easier to do a deal with with the with 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 Tech Three? Was it easier to do a deal with HRC? And who did you deal with? Levio, I think, was there at the time. No. Or no, he wasn't. No, actually, we so we very see Andrea started in two thousand and nine. Ah. Okay. Uh, so first season was two thousand and nine. So we did the, the negotiation was ah uh, was with a guy that I don't even, I don't remember the name now. He was there just for a couple of seasons. He was the structure in Honda at the time was this: the top management would only deal a little bit with the with the agreement. You have to negotiate the agreement with somebody who was in charge of the contracts, including the mechanics contracts, including the any contract would go through the same person, you know, and. Uh, I remember this guy was there for the first time and it was quite difficult to understand each other, you know. Uh, but we managed to have the deal done and, uh, and everybody was happy. After the evening of Donington 2009, Dobby won the race, was the last race held in Donington. And he, he won it, didn't he? He won the race. He won it. In wet race. Wet race. 50-50. Yep. Yeah. And uh, so I jumped into the truck of HRC and, uh, you know, negotiated in 20 minutes the renewal, a two-year renewal for Dobby. Unfortunately, the next season, Livio and Nakamoto decided to sign with uh, Casey Stoner. So they wanted to, to, to get Andrea into satellite team for 2011 and we didn't want to move. And that was a, you know, I wrestled for a few months, but this is when the detailed, the detailed negotiation on the first contract was important, because in that contract we wanted to make sure that it was clearly written that the deal was for the, the HRC team, the internal team, the official team, and that obliged HRC to line up three buys in 2011. Uh, so I negotiated with, with Livio, but only not the contra, the, 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 the wrestle. But we, we stayed friendly. Fortunately, you know, Livio is, is, a, is a clever guy and he understands that one thing is, you know, what you do for your job and everybody plays his part and you fight out your corner, but then you can have a beer as a friend in the evening, which, is, which was good. Um, then I negotiated with Hervé for Tectoire. Bonchalat was uh, very easy, very smooth, very simple. Everybody just said, look, this is what I have. You take it or I take another liner. That was, <laughs> There's your stop point. That was it. Very simple, very easy. But it was, we had a great relationship also because this way of being very direct, very honest with, uh, from Hervey was, was good. And then we had a few other negotiations with Ducati, which were... Uh, sometimes complicated, I have to say. But, but I was, you know, I was happy. We obtained what we wanted, more or less. And, uh, and uh, you know, the result then were good enough to say that it was the right thing to do. Did you negotiate an RS6 for him? Oh, no, yeah, that came with the contract, yes. <laughs> every year, every year there was a, there was a car. <laughs> yes, was that the first yes. time that you had to negotiate a car in a motorcycle racer's contract? <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. dear. Um, what, were, what were your best times with Andrea? What are the sort of two or three standout moments? 125-250, MotoGP, what, what were the moments? Uh, so when he won the World Championship uh, in 1-5, we, we were at the beginning of our relationship. We started working in September 2003, so 2004 was more a, you know, knowing each other season, 
he won the championship, so I found myself suddenly with the world champion. Uh, you know, I was good, but I didn't really, you know, enjoy that moment because it was still, you know, not really there, you know. And uh, I have to say, I enjoyed so much some of the victories of Andrea, you know. I remember we, I came out of the commentary box or I was somewhere, or maybe I was with KTM and... and and the Andrea had won a race. Andrea had won a race. I think it was Austria. And you were on a scooter coming through the paddock at full speed with somebody on the back. <laughs> you had a white shirt on. I think you always wear a white shirt. And um, and you were just this picture of joy. And I had a bottle of water. And I just threw it all over you. And you didn't care. You didn't care <laughs> one little bit. It was just that moment. Brilliant. <laughs> You know, I don't remember that moment, but because because I was completely, you know, um, gone. I think, you know, during races often, I think I've lost years of my life, not days, because the tension, the, the, I mean, sometimes I look at the screen and uh, I think, okay, we, we are almost there, you know, and then we are not even halfway to the race. I'm exhausted already. But I have to say, it's the same with Alvaro, you know. When you are involved in the, and you know the person and you understand and you go through the struggles and then suddenly you're fighting for something important, you know, it's so intense that often I ask myself, how long am I going to do it for? Because I don't know if you can still stand that kind of level of tension, you know. Uh, but, yeah, some of the victories of Andrea and of Alvaro are, you know, yeah, they will stay with me forever, you know. Dovi, I think, Japan 2017, in the rain with fighting him and, uh, and markets, you know, these guys, they gave half a circuit to the other riders while overtaking each other in the rain, you know. You know, with two different riding styles, two different bikes, which made, which made them faster in some points, and slower in other points. So all the strategy and and in the rain, you know what's going to happen. You go down and and you don't even know how and mm. you know. So uh, that victory of Dovi was for me unbelievable, even more than the Austrian, mm. you know, last corner victories. Uh, and same with Alvaro, you know, some of the victories he brought home last year. But this year in, in Australia in the wet, yep. you know, um, yeah, I think, yeah, those are memories. Yeah, that's fantastic. This is one thing about motorbikes. I've never stayed for a Formula One race. I always left Saturday evening, Formula One. I always left the paddock on Saturday evening, you know, because it didn't make any sense, you know, you know. Sunday, you have no interaction with the drivers because they are incredibly busy. There is the race, no meetings happening. You've done your job on Friday and Saturday, you just go home. In MotoGP and Superbike, I cannot leave. <laughs> I have to stay for the race. It's, well, it's a no-brainer, isn't it? That's, that's <clears throat> it's an absolute no-brainer. Um, what was it like when you sat down with Ducati and realized that Ducati and Davizioso wasn't going to continue? What's your hindsight view of that as you look back on it? Well, that moment uh, was just the end of a, you know, of uh, a few months of uh, when the relationship deteriorated, you know. And... Uh, I think that the main reason for that was pride, you know, <clears throat> a little bit of both sides, you know. Uh, and when you when you put pride into a relationship, it's, you know, it's not going to work. Something it's broken, you know, because you're not following the right interest. You're not focusing on. What is the best thing? I'm saying for the rider or for the team, you know. I'm saying if you put pride into the equation, then you're not focusing on the most important thing, which is what is the best for, 
And what was that pride? Well, the pride was, you know, uh, was mainly on the blame of why we were not winning. You know, I have to say that I, I read recently an interview of Gigi saying that uh, they, one of the secrets, if not the secret to, to, to their success is that uh, now they're listening to the people, to the riders, they want, you know, the engineers happy, you know, in their, in their position, in their job, and uh, they're listening more to the riders. The, the culture of blaming has been, uh, has been something that played against that relationship. Because at one point, if each other blame the other party, you know, you're not gonna go, you're not gonna go far, you know, and uh, and that was it. That was pride was the reason, you know, and uh, and I think it, it it was a shame because twenty one would have been possible. There would have been a championship to win. Mm, I agree. I agree. You know, Dobby being the guy that would be scoring always many many points in every situation. Uh, being the best Ducati riders through his career in Ducati. So I think that uh, he would have um, he would have actually a beneficial kind of relationship with uh, the young riders coming through, like Peko, because uh, he would, they would have pushed him, you know, as did Jorge. You know, when, when Jorge Lorenzo joined the team, Andrea was pushed to to up his his, his game, you know, and uh, and when Jorge started winning races, Dovi had again to react, you know, and uh, he came he, he, he enhanced the level of his game again. Mm. So I think uh, it, it could have been uh, a successful twenty one season, twenty twenty now. Because at the time, uh, Ducati was struggling to understand the tires, you know, and the championship being so short and so compressed and uh, without testing, basically, I don't think uh, it was possible in, uh, in, in that season, even with the perfect relationship, I mean, you know. Mm. Um, and Andrea also is, is always a rider who push when he understands that it's possible to push, you know. And he was not confident that year. He was not confident in the braking. He was not uh, being happy with the, with the, the new rear tyres of Michelin. Uh, he could have, He was not able to brake uh, well. So 2020. But 21, I think, could have been the season. But, yeah, we never well, know. We never know. <clears throat> it's done, it's gone. Um, what was the story of Alvaro... Bautista leaving Ducati after just one year in World Superbike, his first year in World Superbike. What was the story there? Because he was, he was winning everything. Yeah, he was. He was. You know, clearly, he was incredibly fast. You know, uh, it took everybody by surprise, including ourselves, because he was winning races by 10, 15 seconds. You know, from yeah, without even testing much the bike. And uh, uh, that said, he didn't have. The control of the situation. In fact, when he started crashing, he didn't know why. And then, and I have to say, he could have won the championship. Uh, the, the main the main issue was this uh, incident that he had in Laguna Seca, where Toprak basically, you know, um, crashed him and uh, damaged his shoulder. And that the, those those points were crucial at the end of the season. And basically, they were not his responsibility, democracy, you know. But uh, we didn't find a deal with Ducati. Wow. We, we couldn't find a deal with Ducati. And then uh, and at one point, uh, I will say that's, that's it. So we, we had to, to find an alternative, and that alternative became Honda. The question is, was it a mistake? I think it was a... Missed opportunity for both Ducati and Alvaro, but both parties understood that this couple had something special. 
Okay? And I don't think there was this understanding. On the other side, the experience in Honda was fundamental for Alvaro to reach the level of maturity he has now. So now Alvaro wins races, but most importantly, he is more in control. He understands what's happening much more than in 15. Sorry, 15, in uh, night. Uh, uh, yes, the, the first uh, time. Yeah. The first time. Yeah, the first time. So um, that that path, you know, was very, very has been crucial, fundamental. You know, especially the second season in HRC. Some of the discussions we had were based on uh, the control of the situation, right. mm. because there was a, the situation was difficult. Mm. You know. Technically, Alvaro was still able to be very close to the podium, but only because he learned to control some of the elements that he never focused before. Mm. On. We say in English, you go two steps back to go uh, three forward. You know, it's, uh, it's yeah, exactly so, what he's done. Yeah. So um, what young and up-and-coming talents have you got up your sleeve on your books at the moment? Who is... Uh, Who's going to be the next MotoGP race winner managed by Simone Battistella? <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I, don't have young, I don't have riders or young riders in MotoGP paddock at the moment. Um, I, I work with Yari Montella in uh, Supersport and uh, we have a younger rider in, in, the, in the Italian Superbike Championship, uh, Samuele Cavalieri. I am not focusing in MotoGP at the moment because, well... One of the reasons is what we discussed at the beginning, you know, families. There seems to be more and more involved, and uh, I simply find it very difficult. So, um, for what I can see, I, I see a couple of riders coming through the ranks that are very interesting. One I really like is um, Moreira in Moto3. I think that guy is some numbers, you know. I don't know why he's struggling some time, but uh, uh, he's a rider that I think uh, could be could be very successful in the future. Interesting, interesting. What uh, what might you change in MotoGP at the moment? What you know, not 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 from a rider point of view, but what might you move around with your thirty years of motorsport experience? At the moment, I. I'm very worried about the technical situation. I'm worried for the safety of the riders, you know. Uh, so at the beginning of the season, with the introduction of this sprint race, uh, I was I was quite curious and worried about uh, the possible uh, you know, incident. Uh, now I have to say that's not the, the issue. The issue is the bikes have developed so much that their speed in terms of lap time, has improved too much. Now, so in motorsport, we have a couple of elements that we know are dangerous. The reduction of the braking area and the corner speed. If you enhance the corner speed and reduce the braking area, you know you're enhancing the level of you know, danger. Because to overtake a rider has less space to play with. So he has to take more risks. Now, in terms of braking, with the aerodynamics, if you are behind, you have a less stable bike. So the guy behind who is trying to overtake not only has less space to play with, but also has a worse bike than the guy in front because of the aerodynamic is, you know, um, is not working as effectively. So that is dangerous. And we have seen how many times the rider have just to throw themselves into the corner and hope that the other guys is either understanding that they're coming or they will crash. And corner speed. Corner speed in motorsport is very simple. You enhance corner speed, when you lose the bike, you're going to get more damages. Then the safety areas are the same. The bikes are faster in the corners, but the safety distances are the same. Mm. And you have riders hitting the barriers, you know? So 
this is the reason of this is that the teams are incredibly good. So once the agreement was done that the regulation was be stable, to make sure that the costs were, you know, uh, control under control until 2009, I think 26, eh? or yeah, 2026. Uh, the idea was good, but then the regulation was not covering areas that became very important for the development of the bike, which is the aerodynamic, because nobody contemplated aerodynamic before. Now aerodynamics is very important, and then the devices lowering the center of gravity are also there, which was not, you know, they were not contemplated in the regulation. So, in these uh, gray areas of the regulation, the first one was to cut it to understand there was an opportunity to develop. They did. They were successful. They still are on top of the game. Uh, the others are following. But this is bringing the bike to a level of performance which is dangerous. You know, simply, it's very simple. So from my point of view, the regulation has to change for safety reasons, even if this goes against a deal that was done with the manufacturers to froze the regulation until 2026. Now, I understand Dorno is working to allow the concessions uh, to Yamaha in particular and, and Honda uh, in order for them to develop the bike. And from my point of view, this is okay as an idea to make sure that the level is equal, but they're doing so by allowing Honda and Yamaha to enhance their level, my, my point is we need to reduce the level, you know. I understand that this sounds like going against Ducati, and, which is not fair, and it is not fair, you know, because Ducati was clever, was good, is effective, is dominating because they have a better bike, uh, because they are very good engineers. So in a way, it is unfair because if the others are sleeping, it's not Ducati's fault. Exactly. You know, but this is not, a, my point is not about uh, being fair or unfair. It is not about the commercial side to have more equal races uh, so that the show is better. It's simply about the safety. And this is, and so this is not a decision of, Dorna, you know, like should go through the discussion. This is for something for the federation to impose for safety reasons. We cannot wait for more damages to be done. We haven't had a single race this season with a full grid of riders. Not even the first. Mm. Exactly, yeah. That's exactly what the FIA did after Senna lost his life. They they implemented a hole in the airbox uh, to reduce a little bit of power and they put in temporary chicanes at Barcelona, at Spa, at places I can't remember now, immediately. Um, well, well, we cannot have the, you know, the, the, the dramatic situation. We already have many riders in, you know, broken. I mean, I'm not saying that this, the reason is because their, their injuries are, is only that. Of course, the older riders are simply trying to ride over the limit of a bike who has clearly, who is less performant mm -hmm. than the other, so they crash. That's, that's for sure one, the main reason for the older riders being, you know, mm -hmm. uh, injured. But the signs are there saying that this level of performance on the technical side is simply too much. If on top of that you put that, the races are, yeah, funny, oh, I'm not sure about that, you know. I mean, you've seen in Aston, which is a circuit, you know, historically good for racing, you know, good for the show, you know. Uh, once Jorge Martin reached, uh, I think it was Spargaro and Binder, that group, they could not overtake. No. Because it's, no. you know, you can't easily overtake. But Zeki, he had one second gap with Banyaya. He could not make it up. He, he couldn't bridge it, no. So no. I don't see the show. Uh, I don't see the development being uh, transferable to 
commercial vehicles. So if that technology created in MotoGP was useful then for the for the product, so, well, you know, we are developing. We are a center of research and development, and we, you know, transfer knowledge to the production lines. Okay, fair enough. This could be a good reason, but it's not there. We are not going to have bikes with complex aerodynamics and, uh, you know, devices that allow them to drive race outside, you know, on the traffic lights. This is not going to happen. So the, all this development, from my point of view, has to be regulated. Mm. It's very difficult because prototype, the word prototype means kind of do what you want, do what you can, do what the human mind enables technology to do. Um, it, but you're absolutely right. The, the safety is uh, is paramount. And that line that you said, you know, there's not one grid so far this year where we've had a full grid, which is, you know, that is out of control at that point. Um, so uh, hopefully there will be a resumption to this uh, to this problem um we're getting towards the end of our uh, our little chat and it's been absolutely fascinating but there's always one question i've got to ask everybody who's a guest what's your best party story after winning a race or winning a championship what's your best party <laughs> well i i had a few actually and i'm very proud of it um so we i think the the two best were one was very short in malaysia after Dovi won uh, his second MotoGP race in 2016, uh, I, you know, I, I bet with him that when it was uh, in the second win of his career, I would have shaved my head, <laughs> and uh, he did in the pub of the Samasama Hotel, while you know, 50 wild drunken friends were having a party, and uh, Randy Mamula put all my hair cut at the time on his head, <laughs> glue them, and uh, we had a, one of the best parties. And I just remember at two in the morning, I had to rush to get on the plane, and uh, <laughs> I couldn't have a shower, of course, so I was in terrible state, but I was a party to remember. The other one was last year in Misano when Dovi retired, and uh, he, he rented a whole disco, and we had a party, through the night, that was wild but beautiful because there was the good, the right feeling of you know joy and friendship and you know we went clearly over the limits, but uh, but uh, in 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 a, in a positive way you know. Good memories. It's all worth it for lights like that. Indeed all worth it it's all worth it uh simone fascinating fascinating as always one of the cooler heads that i've met in the mother gp paddock over the last 25 plus years uh, thank you for joining us i hope that everybody has enjoyed your knowledge given to them today thank you thank you toby thank you for having me I'm sure you agree Simone is very measured and cool in everything he does, but then that's no surprise as he learnt from the high altar of driver management, Julian Jacobi, who looked after Prost, Senna and Montoya during their stellar careers. Thank you so much for your time, Simone. Very, very enjoyable and insightful. Keep in touch with us here on The Race with MotoGP Podcasts and the Toby Talks 2 series with myself. In the meantime, take care wherever you are in the world. We'll speak soon. The Athletic.